Section 25 of Bethlehem by Frederick William Faber. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Calvary Before Its Time, Part 2. Egypt is not less fertile than the desert in images of beauty. What are these white walls, which are laved by the flood when it is out, but otherwise rise out of that luxuriant green flat of densest herbage, sward so inveterately green that it seems proof almost against the scorching of the Egyptian sun? It is Heliopolis. We will enter on the evening of its pagan holy day. All the morning there have been endless sacrifices, all the day there have been crowds of worshippers, the streets are full of people, the evening star will rise upon the grave riot of an Egyptian festival. Towards sunset there is a pause in the streets, the multitudes stand still. It is as if a mighty city had been paralysed by some dreadful shock. A fearful, dubious rumour has gone forth, stilling all the noisy populace, so that men could hear each other's hearts beating. A moment's pause, the multitude sways uncertainly like a huge tree in the first blast of the tempest, and then rolls onward to the temples, in waves and waves of men pressing upon each other as billow chases billow up the sand. As the sun was sloping, while the lanterns were just being lit, while the incense were smoking tranquilly before the idols, and the sacred doves were settling themselves to roost in the plane trees of the outer courts, the images of the gods fell without warning from their bases with a hideous crash, and are lying mutilated and in fragments on the ground. Not a tremor of earthquake could be felt. The marble pavements have not given, nor one slab been raised. The air was so still, there was hardly a breath to set a broad plain-leaf turning on its little unwieldy pivot. What omen is this, what fearful unlooked-for anger of the sun! Meanwhile, some pilgrims are entering the city gate unnoticed. Who would notice pilgrims on such a night as that, when every town of Egypt, the ports at the Nile mouths, the dwellers above the cataracts, even the peasants from the distant oases, had gathered to the sanctuary of the sun? Through streets, silent, vacant, in the rear of the multitudes that have rushed to the temples, Mary, clasping to her bosom her slumbering child, follows Joseph, faintly and wearily to the Khan to find a corner amidst its crowded inmates, or to find all places full, the old experience of Bethlehem. The streets of Heliopolis come before us on a later day, Mary as carrying the infant in her arms. It is a many-coloured scene. Crowds are moving to and fro, buying and selling, in parties or alone. Every one, it should seem, must be intent upon his own occupations, Strangers are no strange thing, sanctuaries and pilgrimage places are hardened to the sight of strangers, yet somehow that Jewish mother and her child draw all eyes upon them. Everyone looks up and follows them with his look as long as they are in sight. It is something more than beauty which overflows the countenance of the child. There is an attraction in him which will not give an account of itself. He is like a light in a dark place, an apparition that fascinates the beholders and awakens deep, nameless emotions in the heart, which are akin to worship and religion. The dark eyes of those bronzed faces cast wild looks upon the glorious child. There is something in them which makes the mother tremble instinctively. She has no superstition of the evil eye, but she looks onward to another crowd in another place, to other wild eyes cast yet more wildly upon her love, 
upon a far darker day than these days of exile. She folds him to her bosom, as if they were going to rob her of him, when it is truly, and she knows it, only the fierceness of their admiration which so lights up their swarthy features. He also seems to feel the presence of that pagan multitude, and in some way to resent that which causes his mother fear. He gazes on the people unblenchingly, as if it were in the bold simplicity of infancy, not without deep love, yet with something flashing king-like in his air. He even stirs in her arms uneasily, as if he would defend her and take her part against that multitude. His face is set like that of a young eagle in a storm, beating up against the channels of the wind, another sort of beauty from that which he will wear when he is driven to and fro like a hunted thing by the maddened populace of Jerusalem. The Egyptian city rises up before us again with its narrow streets, its quaint bazaars, and the menageries of its multitudinous temples. It is now indeed, as its name imports, the city of the sun, for the true sun is there, and the place looks darker for his shining. Over the hot Nile valley, antiquity broods like a cloud. The old fortunes of the people of God rest there like a shadow. The ancient plagues of the unbelieving king still seem to load the air. The river is as silent as a river in a dream. There is an atmosphere of fate over the picture. The bright lights seem burdened with something which is not bright. In an alley of high walls near the city gate, in a dim street with buildings so tall that the sun lights it only in its meridian transit, is Joseph's dwelling of poverty and exile. The implements of work lie round about. But there is a pause. Mary has suspended her spinning. Joseph holds in his hand the piece of wood he was fitting to another. Their eyes are fixed upon the child who is on his feet upon the ground, but clinging to the lap of Mary's garment. Of himself, unpersuaded, unexpected, without a pattern sedulously given him to mimic, he has spoken his first word. Perhaps it was the name of God, perhaps his mother's name. Because he was himself God, skilful in the craft of love, exquisitely considerate in the inventions of compassions, we will deem it was his mother's name. Look at the eyes of the mother and the foster-father. An earthquake might rend Heliopolis in twain, and they would not hear or feel. The glow of ecstasy, puzzled but not disquieted, is on their features. The word the father spoke eternally has now spoken himself. Who would dare to think that even Mary taught the word to speak? The cloud of silence broke suddenly, from before his mind, as from off a mountain-top, and the little house at Heliopolis was flooded with refulgence. The very sound gave light. The very light played music. The ears of those two had heard the midnight gloria of the angelic choirs, but it had no such melody as this. It well-nigh called their souls out of their bodies, it was so wonderful. To that picture we listen rather than look. It has passed away. Evening has come down upon the land, the brief evening. The Nile glows like a glossy creature, swift, broad-backed, and almost noiseless in the crimson sunset. Only at the edge the quick waters make the reeds twitter a little, except in the little earthy bays where the lotus lily rises and falls at anchor quietly, just tremulously enough to shake its odours out upon the air, like incense from the thurible. The incarnate God is musing on the bank. Mary withdrawn a stone's throw from him, as if she had felt it was his will, 
and yet withdrawn less far than the apostles at Gethsemane. Her gaze is as fixed upon him as an angel's look is fixed upon the vision. His mind opens before us as if a sanctuary were being unveiled, and it flows out of his eyes as if they are bent upon the stream and catch the reflection of the golden light from the shining waters. In the scarce audible murmur of the river he hears the cry that rang through Egypt in the night, that terrible night of the firstborn. It is as if the echoes of that wail had been undulating over the desert ever since. The tears gather in his eyes, for he thinks of Bethlehem, its mothers, and its innocence. But he hears now in the stillness, while the evening breeze scarce waves its indolent pinions over the sun-shriveled land, the trampling of countless hurrying feet. It is the children of Israel going forth in the darkness upon their exodus, and there is the exodus of a whole world to be accomplished now, and it is he who must cleave the sea, and how shall it be cloven? The twilight deepens. Almost suddenly it is dark. The eyes of the child have gone out in the darkness, and the wind rises and the mist gathers on the stream. Once more we see him in the early dawn passing through the gates of Heliopolis after Joseph's dream. The freshness of the morning is on the Nile. The sails of the boats catch the sun above the high banks of the river. In the faces of all the three there is a sense of freedom after imprisonment. The brightness of a return from exile breathes in every feature. The careworn look is gone. The step is elastic. It is morning in their souls as well as morning on the outside earth. They are like those who have had a recent message from heaven. They have a glory round them like wreaths of angels manifest. The pagan faces have been a grief to Joseph. They were a dread to Mary. They breathe more freely now that they are out of the city of those dark men and away from the strange closeness of the dim bazaars and many latticed walls. They are now like the singing birds of the woods and fields, free and living on the providence of their heavenly Father to find food on all roadsides and to drink of the brook in the way and to sing that perpetual voiceless song which a quiet heart is always singing in the ear of God. But there is something more in the boy of seven years old. The growth of his humanity seems to betray the divinity more and more, as if it had more room to display itself, and anticipated each new human gesture, and made it all divine. The light in his clear eyes is deep, and in their depths are mysteries. Jerusalem is in his heart. There is a desolate green hill outside its gates, which is a magnet to his soul. There is the same wonderful look upon his boyish face which amazed the apostles so much in him when he hurried along the road to Jerusalem, as if to be in time for his passion, as if it might else elude his thirst for suffering. That look upon his face is printed now on Mary's heart and overflows her face as well. Those two faces belong to Calvary. Upon the face of Joseph there still rests the old tranquillity of Bethlehem. Nazareth also contributes to this land of the sacred infancy many fair scenes. In truth, a complete pictured theology of the Incarnation. We often come near to rest in life and then are cheated of it, and after that we reach a better rest through disappointment, better because it was not our own choice, and better as it proves in its very self. Such seems to be the significance of that holy calm which shines on the features of Mary and Joseph as they draw nigh to Nazareth after they have been disappointed in their desire of dwelling at Jerusalem. 
I should not say disappointed, for there are no disappointments to those whose wills are buried in the will of God. With the boy also Jerusalem is to be delayed. Yet on his face there is the same intense tranquillity as if the coming rest sent its peace before it into soul and countenance. All three wear the look we might expect to see on the faces of those who are first entering heaven. There is no trouble, no surprise, no voice, no jubilee, but a flush of peace, arising from the intensity of joy kept down and deepened by the nearness to God, and the momentarily expected vision. Even to those whose souls are God's sanctuary on earth, Nazareth is itself a sanctuary to be approached with awful memories. It is the dread scene of the Incarnation, and now it is to be the home of Jesus for many uneventful years, whose uneventfulness, if we could read it rightly, is the most eventful page in all creation's history. Its glory now consists in its being the harbour of the boy and the witness of continual hidden wonders. For eighteen years each day, which to us seems to have been but one brief waving of time's soundless wing, will teem with wonders inexhaustible even by angelical intelligence. Quiet, sequestered Nazareth, which the green hills sentinel so pleasantly, how didst thou suck in those three tempest-tossed souls as the harbour draws in the ships with the setting of the tide? Look upon those faces. Calvary seems further off than ever now, yet there is something which speaks of it in the eye. It is not forgotten, it is only waiting. In Mary there is a look of reprieve. In Jesus it is steadfast calm and a certainty which needs not to be precipitate. Joseph has the air of age musing contentedly on the pleasant place which it has chosen for its burial. Altogether a complicated contentment is the ruling genius of the picture. Then the interior of the holy house comes before us. We behold the outer chamber of the house and Joseph's shop, and the green swelling hills are seen through the open doorway. Mary is seated in the doorway, spinning, though at that moment her work is arrested, and Jesus is near her, looking fixedly at some doves that are feeding in front of the door. The mother is gazing upon her son in astonishment, yet it is an astonishment which is passing rapidly into adoration, and every moment we expect to see her at his feet. She does not know exactly why this is, yet it is not new there. There have been times like this before, times when his apparent growth in wisdom and grace have dawned upon her, and come home to her, through some look or gesture seemingly trivial in itself. It is just as with mothers whose eyes, however love may quicken them, do not see their children grow, but who wake up now and then to the fact that they are grown, and that some sweet interesting change has taken place in them. It is the hour of one of these heavenly surprises now. Mary looks as we might fancy an angel would look, who has been gazing on the beatific vision these thousand years, and now for the first time sees something new in God, which yet was always there. The creature, rather than the mother, is working in her features. Let the scene change to the inner room where Jesus sleeps. It is just after the return from Egypt. Mary has helped him to undress and has arranged him in his bed. Her face glows with a loving familiarity, as if the very offices in which her fingers had been engaged made her heart more free. He has been forward in his caresses, those caresses which become more touching to a mother when childhood is passing into boyhood, 
as if they were of more value, because they are more conscious and deliberate, and perhaps more rare. Her heart is overflowing with an earthly mother's love, yet there is some contradictory look in her eye, something which controls love, but does not lessen it. It is not as if she had for one moment forgotten, or as if she otherwise than calmly realized her son's divinity, but it is as if love and worship were not always like two rivers blending in an inland lake, but as if they sometimes alternated in quiet waveless tides, as if in a landlocked bay far up in the embrace of mighty hills, yet whither the sea travels with his ebb and flow. She looks less the creature and more the mother now. There are many pictures also which remain to this day in heaven, painted upon the unforgetting intelligences of the angels, of which the scene was Joseph's shop. The common litter of a carpenter's working place is there. Boards propped up against the walls, pieces of wood lying over each other in all shapes and at all angles, the floor strewn with chips and straight lines of sawdust, under the place where he has been sawing, various tools mingling in the apparent confusion, and mutilated implements of agriculture lying outside the door. This is the scene which presents itself, and Mary is standing in the doorway of the house hard by. Joseph is showing Jesus how to do some work, and his broad man's hand is laid on the small hand of the boy, and is gently guiding his fingers. He is doing it mechanically, for he is gazing rather on the Saviour's face than on the work. He sees the boy all resplendent with glory, and his faith recognizes in him the omnipotent creator, the eternal worker, who so deftly fashioned the countless worlds, and whose fingers he, the aged carpenter, is now venturing to press, to guide, and to manipulate as he wills. The old man's soul overflows with adoration, but tranquilly, without wave or sound, as if fed by silent springs from underneath. Nevertheless, he does not desist from guiding the hand of Jesus. He does not interrupt the lesson which he knows to be so little needed. He is too humble for that. He understands his office. It was incomprehensible to him always from the first. The exercise of his authority could never be otherwise to him than the exercise of a sublime obedience. Then, as his soul swells with adoration, self-objection falls over his features like a veil of light as the sun breaks the clouds and unrolls his splendour downwards from the brow of the hill to the vale beneath. His humility so clothes him with majesty that he looks almost godlike, and his age is transfigured into a semblance of eternity. As he is older now and stronger, the water pitcher is not too great a weight for the creator of the world. Yet it bows him forward and makes him tread with a different step as he climbs up that grassy path with his burden. Many are coming and going from the well, all have a word to say to Mary's son, and he answers, sometimes with a word, more often with his eye. All are contented. He is a silent boy, but there is something in his presence in that little town like the sun in heaven, whose shining and obscurity make more difference to man and beast and herb than words can tell. Women with their pitchers upon their heads stop and turn and gaze upon him, and then sigh with envy at Mary's lot contrasting it with secret sorrows of their own in which their sons bear mournful part. The rough manners of the Nazarenes soften when the sunbeam of his smile is on them. 
cold hearts warm, and hard hearts grow gentle, and anger dies away, and all are divinely unmanned as he comes among them. He is already a king, a little king of men's hearts, crowned in the love and loyalty of the most boorish village in all Syria. They have crowned the boy, but they will uncrown the man, when his royalty becomes a serious thing. He knows this already. He looks at them with more than sorrow, with more than love, with an indescribable yearning which attunes all his features. They have made him king, but for their sakes he is rather longing to be priest. The water, as it gurgles in the pitcher, is like a heavenly temptation to him. His thoughts are onward upon Jacob's well and the woman of Samaria. His thoughts are over all the world in countless Christian fonts. The blood in those veins must mingle with the water in that pitcher before it will cleanse the sins of Nazareth away. The thought is an ever-present one with him, yet his heart leaps up now as if it were new, and the face of the boy broadens into the countenance of the man of Calvary, and, almost mastering the characteristic sweetness of his youth, is clothed as with a fire in the mature beauty of the Redeemer. But is Jerusalem nowhere in the landscapes of the sacred infancy? Let us go back to the day when the fortieth sun rose upon the newborn babe. The early dawn had seen Mary and Joseph wending their way from Bethlehem to the holy city. It was the clear cold of a bright spring morning. The dewdrops glistened like diamonds on the grass, and the palms as they waved flung off their harmless crystal showers on the passers-by. Jesus lay, a seemingly unconscious infant, now in his mother's arms and now in Joseph's. White in the morning light were the terraces and towers and temple roofs of magnificent Jerusalem, growing like a natural growth from the dark edges of its steep ravines. He looked upon it all from out the envelopment of his swaddling clothes, as a bird looks on a human face from the leafy covert which fringes and conceals its nest. The passion is in his eyes. The very separate scenes of that terrific drama may be read there, even when in their liquid lustres the buildings of Jerusalem were mirroring themselves with soft impression. It was as if, in the grandeur of a heavenly vision, some glorious poet or mighty warrior or high-souled statesman were allowed to see that sublime thing for which he was born, that worldwide work for which he was to live, that grand end for which all life was to be but scanty measure. There would be much in such a vision to terrify, but the sublimity of terror is the increase of courage to noble souls, and how superb would be their look as they gazed on the bravery of their success, yet saw meanwhile that by the universal law their greatness must be their martyrdom. Yet such was only the groundwork of the light that shone in those infantine eyes. It was only the human element which beautifully ranged and reconciled itself there with the divine. It was the invisible soul become visible in the swaddling clothes. The body had almost disappeared, effaced by that deluge of inward light. The mother goes up to sacrifice. Let us follow her to the temple, for never before was sacrifice like to this. It is the interior of the temple. A strong light falls upon the central figures. The others are lost in the very indistinctness which the contrast of the strong light causes. Simeon and Anna, and a group of holy souls, we know that they are there, but they are only shadows, broken outlines. They take up no room in our eye. Joseph is the silent presence of the Eternal Father, witnessing, ratifying, accepting, overshadowing the sacrifice. 
In this mystery, Joseph is rather part of heaven than of earth. He is more a symbol than an actor. He fulfills his office as shadow of the everlasting. There is Mary and the child and the priest. This last seems rather to be a type of priesthood than an individual priest. His lineaments are manifestly ideal. He is the representative shadow of invisible and sacerdotal power. So much of Joseph's office he usurps for the time, while Joseph is intent upon that higher one. His very garments are embroidered allegories. He is not a human figure. Mary is giving away her child and putting him into the arms of the priest. The spirit of sacrifice is going from her countenance like rays of light. She seems to rise into the air and to widen with majestic grace into colossal dimensions. The mother's heart shines through the magnificence of the glorified heroine, not as if it were outshone, but as if its light were magnified by the other radiance through which it shines. There is no struggle. Her will does not resist the will of God, yet neither is it overlaid or effaced by the divine will. It is present, it is unquenched, its pathos is inimitable. But it is subject, subject with the most free and meritorious subjection, seen through the transparent will of God, which never oppresses the glories it overrules. Victims have a beauty of their own, a beauty not the less touching because it is for the most part dumb. The poor sheep is glorified in the eyes of art not so much by the garland of flowers that hangs about its neck as by the circumstances round it, the priest, the temple, the sacrificial knife. But the beauty of this victim, the glory of this mute infant, is all his own. In his eyes, which look so many volumes in each single glance, we read his perfect knowledge of the unutterable justice of God and the all-holy greediness of its requirements. His mother is lifting him into it as into the mouth of a devouring fire. But his soul is on fire already with the promptitude of his own human will, and it almost outglows the furnace of that eternal will which is opening to receive its victim. Love yearns more to be sacrificed than justice to consume the sacrifice. We remember another scene far off. It was when the sun hung upon the cross and put his mother away from him that he might be poor with the perfection of poverty. He had given himself to his father and could not offer himself again, and so he offered his mother in his stead. It was a scene of cruelest magnificence. He was the sacrificer there and she the victim. They had simply changed places. This picture in the temple was the opposite of that on Calvary. She was the sacrificer here and he the victim. Yet was he not also and especially the victim on Calvary? How marvellously all mysteries are one mystery because they are divine. End of section 25